At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast dedicated to all things eerie, weird and hauntological. In this episode, we're returning to the information-drenched wastelands of cyberpunk, where predatory megacorporations, bioengineer slave races, artificial intelligences blossom, and incompetent tech billionaires are desperately trying to stop the deaf bots from unionising. In our episode on hardware, we ask the question, what is cyberpunk? In this episode, we're asking, in the post-truth digitised veil of tears we find ourselves in, whether cyberpunk. I'm Sean, and joining me here are Lucy. Hello. And a first for this podcast, guest host Elizabeth Sandifer. Hello. Elizabeth is uh, an author, is the author of Tardis Erodutorum, Last War in Albium, and Neo Reaction: A Basilisk and Ringleader at Erodutorum Press. So, Elizabeth, would you like to tell us a little bit about what you're uh, up to these days? What you're working on? Yeah, I'm kind of in one of those lulls between projects where I'm, where I'm considering a couple of things. Because um, right now, Doctor Who is. Starting as we're recording this, um, I'm, I'm talking to you instead of watching Doctor Who. That's how much I love you all. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, you're, you're, you're very welcome. Um, so I'm going to be reviewing that weekly for the next couple of weeks and trying to finish up the uh, very overdue uh, Last Worn Albion chapter I have. Um, and then back to finishing blogging the uh, Capaldi era in the new year, pretty much. Um, and then after that... I have a couple of things I'm considering doing. Um, I'm considering the music of Tori Amos. I'm considering a book about magic and the occult. I'm considering uh, maybe actually writing this cyberpunk book I've threatened to write for a few years now. (laughs) So um, basically, in the last episode we did on the subject of cyberpunk, that was our fifth episode, I believe, on hardware. Uh, towards the end of the episode, we talk, we started talking about uh, the where is cyberpunk now? Um, because uh, one, one of the observations I made is the fact that um, back in the 1980s, cyberpunk was conceived of very much as a uh, forward-facing uh, vision of the future. Uh, whereas now, um, a lot of what we define as cyberpunk as both a kind of uh, theoret- from a theoretical perspective, but also from a stylistic perspective, is essentially become a retro genre. Um, it's uh, it's calling back to a version of the future as conceived in the 1980s, um, and we had some discussion about that. But but yeah, the, the the film I drew particular attention to in this instance was Blade Runner 2049, uh, which I felt I perhaps uh, unfairly maligned as being a a retro film. It's a it's a kind of follow up to a film in the 1980s, and it's very much uh, reutilizing, I guess, a lot of the aesthetics, the sound, and um, some a vision of the future that now may seem um, to some ex- or in some ways clunky or um, uh, well, not just that, but also the fact that um, we conceived of it now as it, it had fallen into the realms of this is rather than a vision of the future, this is in fact an alternate history. 
uh, because in that film it's no longer our future, it is the future of the film Blade Runner, and Atari is still a company, and the Soviet Union is still going. Yes, that's what I think, really, Blade Runner 2049 is begging to be read from a hauntological perspective precisely because of that, because it is a vision of a future which did not turn out like that, but we ended up with something different. Though what perhaps somewhat, arguably somewhat separates it from some of the uh, more classic sort of like hauntological um, examples in literature and texts is that Blade Runner is of course is dystopic. It's, it's, it's a few, it was a warning of a future that we might be falling into. But that isn't the, that isn't you know the primary message behind the original film. But that is it is watching it in whenever it, when did it come out? It was nineteen eighty two. Nineteen eighty two. You know it must be accompanied by feelings of dread, seeing oh crap, this is where we're going, and now teetering on the brink of actually going into the year 2019 we know that this isn't the future that we were going to end up uh, end up with which is why i think a really re- actually a really good conceit of um how do you say his name is it Denis oh, Villeneuve? D- d- i think it's just vervenue vervenue the director of Blade yes. 2049, uh, that he, like you said, he does, he owns the anachronism, and he does make it clear that this is the 2049 of Blade Runner's 2019. It's not. A, it is not our future. It is an alternative history. But then, going back to it, as I did uh, recently, um, uh, with with a view to kind of identifying the ways it is actually also a very very contemporary. Um, a very contemporary criticism drawing on the um, drawing retrospectively on the criticisms that were there uh, essentially what's happening is it's it's seeing kind of the paranoias that are there and seeing how they've evolved um, and I think kind of I think a couple of the well overarching impression is um, it's the, the first Blade Runner film was very much showing uh, the capitalism or kind of neo-capitalism and uh, the state of the world reaching a point of cataclysm. Um, well, both a point of cataclysm, but also a winding down, because uh, there was the sense that it's, um, it's humanity reaching its final stages on Earth, and what's left behind is very much the dregs of society, or that... Um, or, well, I say dregs of society were um, fully aware of a lot of the uh, potential um, readings that can be made of that and also the readings that have been made of that, as we talked about mm. in the last episode and we'll talk about again. Uh, but um, what I, the, the overarching impression I had of 2049 was that it's, it's kind of post-cataclysm. Uh, so that was humanity on Earth in a decline phase, uh, whereas this... Overall, overall, I felt was uh, demonstrating a kind of rebirth, but at the same time a very fraught and traumatic rebirth. Um, I think, um, well, one of the one of the uh, things that it puts very much at the forefront of, um, or of, or of the very least, the narrative. What is actually there in the introductory text um, is the history of how um, how the corporation saved us while damning us. They refer in the introduction to the ecological collapse of the 2020s. Uh, this is something that I think was um, made more explicit in the book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, than in the film, but it is also very, very much present in the film. 
um, that all the animals are dead and the world is turning into a wasteland and we humanity is clinging on to the final vestiges of the old order and its previous ways of sustaining itself uh, which uh, collapsed sometime shortly after the events of the film and then uh, then this there's this um, there's this idea that we were saved by this organization called the Wallace Corporation who uh, through various innovations in synth farming have been able to um, revive well make they, sa- essentially save humanity by making a life on earth if not sustainable at least um adequate adequate and g- <laughs> yeah adequate a- food has been provided by e- nyander wallace praise be to him yes uh he was going to be played by david bowie originally and i don't like jared later anyway but knowing that he i'm not saying he murdered david bowie that would be absurd but it does feel all the worst knowing that later was playing a role that Bowie was going to play um, <laughs> watching that film. I digress. Um, as indeed have I. But, um, <laughs> one, uh, one element that I think is worth mentioning about Blade Runner 2049 um, when it comes to the feeling of it being out of place in time precisely because of the circumstances of the making of the original film is that it does still, it has still obviously taken um anachronistic elements from our own time uh, as part of its visual language like uh, the, you know, the Tyrell Corporation in the original film the aesthetic is exactly what you would imagine an 80s mega corporation to look like Rachel has shoulder pads and all that while um, the low like Nyander Wallace's corporation is all logos and little you know bleepy theme tunes and all that so it's very it's much more apple it's it's kind of like it's apple eating microsoft almost and saving the world and becoming its corporate overlord <laughs> yeah but at the same time um so nanda was his his whole i think a lot of a lot of the initial kind of emphasis of um the the world the film is set in is very much in Nyanda Wallace's vision for humanity after this point, uh, where where he sees its trajectory, because his fixation, and this is where the um, the replicants come in again, is the idea that uh, that humanity is even though he's saved the world briefly, kind of temporarily saved the world, he ultimately recognizes that it is not a sustainable thing, and that um, what we really need to do is explore other planets. And so he's, and there's that scene where he's expressing immense frustration with the fact that they've only managed to conquer nine worlds uh, through his. Um... A, a child can count tonight. Yes. He says. That's one of the things that I think is um, quite striking. I found quite striking when I watched it back in uh, last year when it came out. Is there is something quite uh, new reaction about what Wallace says in in that scene where he's introduced. Um, because something he emphasises is that he feels that he puts it, humanity has lost its stomach for slavery. He says every great civilization was built upon a disposable workforce, and we don't have that. Um, we don't have the stomach for that anymore. We don't have you know the will to use people like that to build something uh, great for capital G and what he sees himself as doing and it's like it's very it's a very obvious piece of symbolism but it's quite effective is the fact that he's blind he can only see through these little flying drones in his vision which is obviously an inherently technological vision all that matters is that we are able to become great uh, but 
make humanity great again, really. And and in this great struggle of imperial conquest, as we take flight and conquer you know, conquer the heavens, and this is only only being possible if we uh, are able to justify to ourselves possessing a slave, literally a slave race, a bioengineered slave race. And that's where the interesting kind of question of the replicants comes in. The um, the he. Well, that was that was really the question of the original film um, that seemed when I the first couple of times I saw it to be almost a bit of a stretch. This idea that we needed computers that could think they could th- they could uh, have a form of intelligence that was almost recognize well, that was recognizable as a human intelligence or if perhaps like a, a kind of hyperhuman intelligence, more human than human, as as the kind of um, the motto of the Tyrell Corporation went, um, and it's. It, it's carried over into his idea of universal conquest, the fact that we still need these things to be humans. Um, and that's that's something I just kind of wanted to generally think about in terms of how how we conceive of this film as a um, as a as an update an updated version of the vision of the original film and how it's carried these ideas and reappraised them in light of developments in the kind of ever growing awareness of actual potentially functioning AI that we're getting. Um, and one of, the, one of the things I actually uh, put in my notes when I was watching the film is the fact that it, my, my, kinda, my reading of why he wanted to um, put, well, why he wanted to have uh, these, hu- these kind of humanoid robots exploring the galaxy and why he needed them to be more human than human and why he needed to make them into something that had the human capacity to reproduce that i mean he he pitches that as a as a matter of numbers uh but at the same time he, you've he, got it he's almost as if he views the replicants as potential von neumann machines he wants them to be able to auto reproduce in order to fill up you know, like i said to fill up the numbers for this disposable slave force so that humanity can storm the heavens and mm. reclaim eden um, but I think what that what that stuck what stuck out to me about that plan is is something I raised actually in the last episode when talking about hardware. This idea that uh, uh, artificial intelligences are to s- are along certain readings an extension of humanity because well as I said um, about like, the killbot the Mark V even if it's like uh, violent and terrifying it is our children it's the next generation because we've given birth to it and we are part of the same lineage that it is becoming. Um, and so this is this is what he. I think it, the sense I get is that he can't conceive of a universal expansionism without a fundamental inherent humanity being at the forefront of it. That the idea that the cosmos they're going to make has to be one conceived along inherited human lines. Mm. Um, and 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 yeah, I mean that's uh, this is something that comes up when we when we when he's introduced, but then that casts reflection onto the fundamental question and the one that is uh, the one that is the far more prominent in the plot, which is what is the humanity of these replicants, and um, and essentially what, how has the existential question of what is human in in the context of these replicants in Blade Runner evolved since the film how do we understand it because this is something that was observed about the original film that the replicants 
are, despite the fact that we're told they do have this empathy deficiency, uh, that they, you know, they don't function as moral agents in the same way that human beings do, um, they are, frankly, the more sympathetic characters throughout. They they weep for one another. They have, I mean, they have very intense emotions. They are they are almost like they're almost like Greek heroes in a certain way. That they are very very emotive beings. While the humans that we encounter throughout the film are aren't that sympathetic. Deckard, and obviously there's the great question mark about whether or not he's a replicant of Blade Runner 2049, quite wisely sidestepped that question. Um, spoilers. Uh, but he isn't a particularly sympathetic character. He's very cold, he's abusive. Um, he's abusive to women, he abuses his own body with, um, with drink. No one in it is nice, and the replicants certainly aren't nice. You know, they do kill people quite horribly and sadistically, but they are alive in the way that the human characters aren't. And I think it's very, and it's, you know, it's a very wise decision to focus explicitly on the main character, the protagonist in Blade Runner 2049, is a replicant. We're told this up front. It's uh, the replicant uh, played by Ryan Gosling. And again, he is quite uh, a cold and distant character. I think Ryan Gosling is weirdly suited to play a character like that because he's got just a very, such a very strange screen presence. But this is something that you do see with the artificial characters in the film, that again, they are more rec oddly recognisably and sympathetically human than the humans we meet on, certainly more than Nyanda Wallace, who is like visibly a monster. Mm. And I, th I think this also... Um, sorry, did, I, did you want to... Sorry, I realise we haven't really left many windows. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. I, I, I also haven't seen um, Blade Runner 2049. I've only seen the first one and then read about it. Um, I think, if, you know, if, if I were to chime something in, I'd, I'd actually go back uh, almost to the beginning of the conversation and, and wonder about, and, and, and this gets at some of my interests in cyberpunk in general. You know, you were talking about Blade Runner 2049 as a retro future. And certainly there are sort of aesthetic visual elements of that. But for me, at least, the thing that's really interesting about cyberpunk is it's this vision of the future that is by and large come true in a way that, you know, space opera hasn't. Absolutely, yes. This um, is something... Yeah, sorry, carry on. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, um, Blade Runner in its... In, in the sort of inaccessibility of space travel. Like, you know, Blade Runner... Um, I don't know if this applies to 2049 as well, but, you know, from what I've read, it, uh, it it largely does. Space travel is present in the world setting, but kind of inaccessible. We never really get to see anything from, um, from space travel. Um, you know, it, it is this sort of lost future, almost within the movie itself. And what we actually have, you know, sure, there's... Atari still. Sure, there's um, the Soviet Union still nominally, but you've got a world from everything that you described that sounds still like a basically plausible future. Mm. Yes, yes. Uh, the um, dates you know, it, shifted, it, but yes. Yeah, it, it's only kind of the date that's wrong. You still have that sort of um, vibrancy of cyberpunk as this science fiction aesthetic that went from the, you know, 80s to the present day from being the sort of impending future to just being the world. And actually, I think that's, some, that's something we briefly talked about in the Hardware episode, the fact that cyberpunk was, it was differentiated from the earlier generation of kind of golden age science fiction in that um, 
it was no longer, it had lost a certain purity of vision. It was something inherently, um, inherently tainted by the, the, imper- the imperfection and the materiality of the present time. Which, yeah, which is, which is an important kind of conceit that I think they, they play quite well with. Yeah, I mean, even if you go back to um, Neuromancer, you know, there's famously um, the first line of Neuromancer doesn't make any sense to a modern day audience. It's um, the sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead station. Um, and that's not how televisions work anymore. Um, you know, there's the joke that goes around Twitter occasionally, you know, the sky above the port was the color of television turned to a dead station, black with a no input detected sign flashing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, the, all of these material metaphors are, all these sort of materialism has fallen out of Neuromancer, and yet a very data-oriented world dominated by, um, the fantastically rich who, as, as you know, Gibson uh, memorably says in the second book that, you know, the very, very wealthy are no longer human. This actually perfectly describes the world as far as I'm concerned in a way that no Isaac Asimov book does. Yes, I remember once, um, I, I won't go into details about it just in case I get in trouble, but uh, at work once we were we were doing work for a company I won't mention, who's owned by a family whose name I won't mention. And I got very bored at one point and read an article, which I won't link to, about the family I won't mention. And I was just astonished about how here and now, in sort of like pre-biotech revolution Earth, how inhuman they seem just because of the um, the avail- what their wealth made available to them, that they could secede very, very cleanly, really, from everything else in the entire world. They could simply create themselves as this, uh, this, this, this unit, which didn't need to interact except on entirely in its own terms. And this is something that you see throughout the 20th century, really. It's only really become possible uh, in the last 150 years, maybe, you know, so the Rockefellers are able to completely insulate themselves from ordinary people and be a law unto themselves. Um, and in and uh, yeah, you see this in the end of uh, towards the end of a new romancer itself, where they I can't remember the name of the family, but they go to the habitat that they live in in orbit, and they just most of the members of this family just keep themselves in cryogenic or. Um, uh, sort of uh, sleep for most of the time while occasionally they wake up just killing fuck and it's just th- th- yes they're, no, they're not recognisably human whatsoever that, that actually also reminds me of one of my own workplace anecdotes where I had to track down some people who were part of an organisation some years ago and we'd lost contact with them and it, I found out one of them had become the president of a micronation that was called the New Utopia and their website was astonishing in that it more or less anticipated the aesthetic that would since become known as vaporwave almost to the to the t you know they had like this is what our kind of um this is what our american embassy is going to look like and it had dolphin statues and palm trees and like of like really crudely photoshopped in grecian busts uh, against a really like shabby hotel-looking building, uh, but and 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 also like the, it was. I mean, there was a there was a functioning president, but it was in fact run by this um, K 
charismatic billionaire who'd adopted the title Lazarus Long. Um, oh my based... god! Oh god! <laughs> he. Um... <laughs> But, but I was thing, apparently he... fine up until that. Like I was like, oh yeah, yeah, this, uh, this is better. all normal he, weirdo. He he had some Peter Thiel tendencies in that. I think he'd like had a he'd read a little bit about how stem cells work, and um, a lot of his vision was ultimately based on the fact that he was able to sustain himself to the point of immortality as a kind of modern day Lazarus. And what's amazing is there are pictures of these people and they look like the cast of Dallas. <laughs> it's, See, I, will, I will link... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what I'm remembering, and, and it's one of the things I've read most recently that just keeps coming, you know, have any, an image coming back to my head. Uh, Douglas Rushkoff wrote a uh, piece a month or two ago uh, in which he talked about being brought by like five tech billionaires to... Uh, a consulting session, basically, that was, you know, paying him half of his annual income for a couple hours of work. And they basically sat him down and asked him very, very seriously, you know, we've got all of this post-apocalyptic planning going, done. We've figured out, you know, how we're going to hold ourselves up with a supply of food and be like, you know, awesome survivalists after the event, whatever it might be. But we can't figure out how to keep our security guards from killing us and stealing our food. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Um, And Rushkoff is just sort of like, yeah, yeah, that's where your plan goes wrong, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Um, Have you heard about the sheep fetus treatments? I'm intensely curious about the sheep fetus treatment. This is something I read last year. I think it was in the. I think it was in BuzzFeed actually, but don't let that put you off. It was. Um, oh, so some mad scientist in the twenties came up with the the brilliant mad scientist idea of what if we take sheep fetuses because they're so pure and mash them up and inject them into ourselves in order to do something and uh and this has become one of those weird treatments the mega wealthy have kind of gotten really into because they have this they're told that this will perpetuate their youth and of course it doesn't because how could it it's just mashed up sheep (laughs) fetus and more of the few people have died as a direct result of this because they've just injected themselves with mashed up sheep and and have died. There is there is something <laughs> faintly uh, messianic, well, not messianic, but it's, it's symbolic about the, the lamb, the purity of the lamb, the Agnus Dei. The, yes. I mean, we've come back to the androids dream of electric sheep here, haven't we? <laughs> it's come full circle. Shall we oh, actually perhaps retur- returning to the text nominally? In yeah, question. I mean that's. I mean that would be a good lead-in for the idea of, or um, well, when we come to talk about uh, Ex Machina, the um, the the uh, the terrifying delusions of millionaires or indeed billionaires left to their own devices, mm-hmm. uh, which I definitely want to kind of lead in on when we come to that. But but yeah, I think it's I think it's totally um, totally totally on it with what you're saying about um, kind of the materiality of cyberpunk. And the conceivability of cyberpunk and the way it uses data, because um, that that actually is one of the things that forms a key crux in uh, the mystery. Well, the kind of the mystery detective element of um, 2049 is the fact that it um, it anticipates. 
in and well, the the last film didn't really anticipate the uh, the the prevalence of data and the immediate kind of um, accessibility of literally everything happening in the world at any given time. Um, in quite the way, you know, it underestimated how much that would become a thing, really. But um, in in twenty forty nine, they haven't so much. Well, they have acknowledged it. They have acknowledged that they uh, didn't see foresee everything conceivable in that dimension. But they've uh, come up with the fantastic conceit that, um, as well as there being an ecological c- collapse in the twenty twenties, there was also something called the big blackout. Um, <laughs> It's it is good. It's it, you know this is this is this is fantastic stuff. But basically, there was this huge blackout where um, everything all, turned every, off. Everything switched off. All our files corrupted, and anything that was stored was all the the only things that really survived was the quasi analog data uh, storage systems or the you know the hard storage of the uh, previous film. So we get we have a fantastic scene where uh, we get. Uh, footage that's cribbed from well, they use some footage of the um, of Rachel undergoing the Voight camp test, and when we get that fantastic line about uh, you know is this testing me as to whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, that that line resurfaces, uh, but it's all intercut with uh, analog static, and it's all tainted and stuff. But um, but then it is it is fantastic how um, they've you know all they've got is these like literally kind of flashcards and stuff about information on the earlier models of android which means that the uh the researches of um of the uh ryan gosling detective character um are severely impeded um and there's also a scene where he goes to a um a uh where they keep children without parents, orphanage. Uh, sorry, I'm I'm having a having one of those moments. But yeah, they go to an orphanage and they try and look up the records because, uh, spoilers. But I think people we we're a spoiler well, heavy all, podcast. All, all you need to know is that they have to look it up in the book. They have to look it up in the book, and the pages have been torn out of the book um, because it, it's. But it's showing like yeah, they actually had to send out agents to go and tear those pages out. They couldn't just wait for it to happen because. Um, because hard data, it turns out, outlasts digital data, and and that's something we've been. It, it well, bef- before I started working in admin, I was blissfully unaware of quite how badly misunderstood the concept of digital storage was. That this the sense that digital storage required no physical space whatsoever. It didn't the like the it didn't just exist in the air. Um, forever uh there was actually a facility in arkansas which is just this big black box in the desert where all these things are processing absolutely we have this image because we use language like i I think we might be slightly repeating ourselves from the hardware episode but we use language like the cloud um when we talk about data storage and we and this creates the notion that uh about data is something um ethereal that it exists on the on the astral plane almost but it's completely untrue it exists because it's we're only able to access it because it's been stored in physical facilities owned by particular interests in particular places who continue to maintain it for a profit it's it not everything is Everything is still material. Mm. We have not transcended the material, nor shall we see the apocalypse. But... It's, it's not a cloud, it's a brick. <laughs> the one, one thing that... Well, two things that strike me. One, I feel like, you know, I, I, as delightful as, you know, film set in 2049 having, you know, the twist be the pages are torn out of the book is, I feel like we missed a trick by not just having Atari have a smartphone. Oh. 
No, they missed the t- a trick with the Soviet Union not having a smartphone. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that strikes me is, you know, and, and this gets to some of early cyberpunk um, and, and its weirdness in general. Blade Runner, for all its importance to cyberpunk, ends up being kind of a visual signifier um sort of linchpin of cyberpunk more than I think it's a conceptual one. Because ultimately cyberpunk, you know, if you look at the other um, big early classics of, of cyberpunk, um, one thing I, I, I noticed when I, I was briefly poking at this mooted cyberpunk book is if you is the release date of Blade Runner and Tron are like a month apart tops. I think they're only a few weeks apart. And what text you would pick as sort of the seminal beginning of cyberpunk would change if those release dates switched. Suddenly Tron would become the sort of cinematic start point of cyberpunk instead of uh, Blade Runner. Um, And I think they would be just as sort of valid and accurate glimpses in that they're sort of equally wrong about what cyberpunk became and equally right about what the world became. Um... And I think the data aspect is part of that. I mean, Blade Runner, um, along with um, Akira, the other, uh, the sort of third one in the sort of triptych of uh, Blade Runner, Neuromancer, and Akira that I would sort of point to as the genesis of cyberpunk, uh, Neuromancer is the only one of those that got computers even close to right. Hmm. I was going to say, like, they missed... Watching it, watching Blade Runner 2049 again... Jeff Bridges would have been better than Leto. Like, think about it. Oh my god! <laughs> Anyone would have been better than Leto. I just. I don't, I don't know. I don't think he did oh, badly. I just, uh, I'm, I'm just going to. I, I completely concur with BoJack Horseman here. He's always the worst thing in whatever he's in. Mm. I just, I just really dislike Jared Leto. Mm. And again, I can't get over the fact that Bowie had to bloody die before but, this film came. I mean, that's, I mean, <laughs> Bowie was in, Bowie was going to be in practically everything. It seems like I, I, I <laughs> everyone seems to think they were getting Bowie for a project. I, I can't <laughs> imagine he was actually agreeing to all of these. Well, <laughs> true, but we can dream. <laughs> oh, yeah. so, but yeah, just I'm I'm thinking kind of like sorry, just uh, oh, actually, why did I pull out my headphone? Okay, just thinking <laughs> in terms of kind of wrapping up the uh, the Blade Runner section, I just wanted to think about it. Well, kind of in summary of of Blade Runner, I kind of just wanted to think about some of the the evocations that we had from the previous film that kind of whether whether they really counted as because there are some bits of it I identified when watching it as like these feel a bit like nostalgia elements. We've got kind of analogs for previous characters from the first film that we we can identify certain concepts with, uh, or at least this was kind of my my methodology when coming to think about the film. Of course, we've got we've got uh, the the uh, the the Ryan Gosling detective character who is called K, which I. I, I think that's too big a thing to even go into here. The fact that he is K and could conceivably be, if not Joseph K, then another um, another of the various Kafka characters who are all called K. Or indeed, he could be uh, the K, as in the letter K of K punk, or the or the um, what do they call it? I think they call it K cataclysms or disasters in um, the in the cybernetic culture research unit, uh, sort of like me, greater mythos. I never did figure out what K stood for. I must mm. admit, but uh, it's probably not that. 
but it's such I, I, a I don't in- find that digging into the the depths of <laughs> why the CCRU did something is ever productive. <laughs> so you could just say the answer is usually just they took a lot of meth and that's what came out. <laughs> this is true. It is often entertaining, but yeah, uh, <laughs> wild times. Um, one one thing that does strike me um, about the retrofuturism that you know, I, I, I was dragging Blade Runner a few minutes ago for you know not getting it, uh, not getting computers right. But one thing that the retrofuturism sort of aids, I think, in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Um, and one thing that strikes me as interesting about cyberpunk in general, it's kind of at the end point of an entire narrative of subcultures that begins with, like, the beats in the 1950s and the sort of post-war period, and then just sort of cr- dies in the 90s. Um, one thing I, 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 I've, you know, speculated about on Twitter is that we really haven't um, fully conceptualized the cultural stagnation of the Bush era, the second one, Mm. Um, that there's just sort of this end of popular culture that happens. Um, It's it's interesting that you mentioned that because that's something that uh, Mark Fisher, um, who is someone we've referred to and think possibly literally every episode of this podcast so far, was precisely an occupation of of his work with, uh, with British pop culture that, not so much with the Bush era, but sort of like the... No, yeah, not so much the Bush era, but earlier than that, from the 90, from the mid nineties onwards, with from boy band like the boy band apocalypse onwards, British culture has remained like very stagnant. Uh, with the which isn't to say that there aren't still events occurring, but not anywhere near as much as was the case before. I think the the way he put it was that someone in nineteen eighty nine hearing the music of nineteen ninety three would be completely fucking mind blown. Whereas someone in nineteen ninety five hearing the music of today would almost be unable to distinguish it. I mean he was writing in two thousand and three at that point, which is a bit well actually sometime between two thousand and three and two thousand sixteen. But uh, yes, I yeah. yeah. But yes, so carry on. Yeah, um, and, and I find that cultural stagnation really interesting because you've got, yeah, I mean, you've got a couple of things. Um, you know, the Bush era uh, era and the sort of cultural um, tone of that, I think, is part of it. Um, but, you know, you've also got the millennium as sort of this odometer rolling over fresh start. And then you've got the rise of the Internet. But, one you know, one thing that strikes me thus is retrofuture um, kind of describes what popular culture looks like where we are sort of endlessly recapitulating retro retrofutures lately I mean you mentioned vaporwave uh, earlier in passing and that's you know a sort of prime example of that and you've got a similar thing going on with um, witch house which is another one of those sort of quasi aesthetics or sea punk all of which are sort of almost fake aesthetics. Mm. They're, they're, they're um, almost, like yeah. you know, yeah, it's aesthetics and subcultures that are created just as sort of thought experiments about designing a subculture. That it doesn't even matter if anyone is a sea punk or is or is you know into vaporwave in any sincere sense, um, just because this sort of slaps some vaguely '90s things together and and. Um, make lame jokes about it is Twitter. I mean, we've accurately <laughs> described Twitter here. 
<laughs> um, you know, this this is what a huge chunk of popular culture actually is. Mm. Um, you know, in in, in uh, the wastelands of twenty eighteen. Um, and so I think the retrofuturism of Blade Runner, like, of course the future has Atari logos everywhere. <laughs> that, that, that seems actually like the future of 2018, despite the lack of Atari. I mean, that's kind of, that's, that's one of the most interesting things I found that I, I sort of thought about, well, <laughs> that I, I came across when watching Blade Runner 2049 and thinking about it in this context, is that we have, in fact hit upon what Baudrillard described as the desert of the real in a way more literal sense than I think even Baudrillard was talking about it. Baudrillard, I think I've I've copy-pasted, because he he talks about this variously, but it's this idea of, um, it's it's the the structuralist thing of sign and signifier, and the definition of postmodernism is this, is the sense that these are signs that are created spontaneously to um, to exist without uh, to exist purely as signifiers that have no point of origin because they've been borrowed and entirely severed from their original material conception. And he was he was writing a, he wrote uh, I think it was uh, sim- simulacra and simulation in. Um, that was in 1988, interestingly, when cyberpunk had already sort of started happening. Uh, but we haven't, we have, I think, I think sort of C-punk in particular, I, I would, I would zero in on C-punk because vape, I can't remember actually which one was the first one that happened. I think Vaporwave was a, th- there was something even before that, like C-punk was just like, let's, let's use this 90s shit. And then Vaporwave was explicitly, let's use all this 90s shit, but have it have absolutely nothing to do with anything and then witch house was like more or less the same thing um but spooky yeah i do but only spooky i do quite like witch house (laughs) i i can't i can't with any confidence say i've actually heard witch house although i've i've heard things that have in retrospect been described as witch house um, I'm certain I've sent you some music, which I've told you is Witch House, but I, I, I couldn't name it. But it's it's interesting though, like how how this evolution has occurred, because there is that there is that sense just in pop cultural terms that we have a 20 year rollover in a lot of things that people will absorb the kind of culture that was around them as children, and then that would be conceived of as their idealised version of adulthood, and then that aesthetic would suddenly become popular again 20 years down the line when these people become uh, viable consumers. Um, and, Which and I don't or- think actually is true. No? I, well, A, I think the speed at which we're going through retro culture is accelerating. Mm. You know, the, the, oh, the, I mean, definitely. The 70s, 80s, and 90s revival periods each took less than a decade. Mm. I feel like we were going through, you know, those decades in seven or eight years, tops. Really more like five or six where you have that sort of, you know, ooh, the 80s are in now. Mm. Um, And then on top of, so, you know, we're kind of collapsing toward um, the decay of popular culture. I mean, it's hard to imagine, and, and this is what I, uh, you know, what we were talking about earlier, it's hard to imagine what aughts nostalgia is going to look like other than, uh-huh. like, electing the star of a big reality show from the period president or something. 
Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's tough to figure out what, what else you even bring back from the aughts. Like, are we all going to start passionately listening to Toby Keith again? Are we going to... We did the 24 revival a couple of years ago. I don't know I don't know what you bring back from that period. <laughs> it reminds me of a remark from Alan Moore, actually, where he was talking about the... Because he was a believer in the 2012 sort of like informational apocalypse theory of Terence McKenna because he's Alan Moore. But uh, he does... There's a wonderful remark from the uh, the interview, the hour-long interview, uh, I think it's called The Mindscape of Alan Moore, he did oh, in the 2000s. Yes, it's wonderful. He says something like, our culture is turning to steam. Turning into steam, yeah. Yes, and he got, again, much like Blade Runner, he got the date wrong, but that was the only thing he got wrong. Yeah, I mean, it. it's... Um, I, I, I guess, you know, going back to what, you know, picking up off of steam and what you talked about, about the materiality of the cloud... Um, and and the, you know, these problems of digital preservation. I mean, one one aspect of our culture turning to steam is simply it boiling off, it being gone. You know, we're we're going to um, we're going to lose vast amounts of stuff just because uh, we're work we're we're working in uh, formats that are almost dead set against preservation, except through a sort of weird mob mentality like you've got torrent sites uh, preserving things in in weird idiosyncratic ways and then when one goes down like you just have people with weird ass shit squirreled away on their hard drives i should know (laughs) um (laughs) you know i i i especially with you know the sort of research i do with things like last born albion with things like tardis eruditorum i have you know tons of weird vanished stuff uh, stashed away in odd folders of my hard drive just because I'm pretty good at getting it sort of fall out of the cloud for me when I want it. Um, But it's a terribly fragile means of preservation. Everything is simultaneously accessible and disappearing. Yes, this, yes, absolutely. And this is something that um, I, I think I don't want to use the word postmodernity because it's just such an ugly, loaded, made to be fake words now. But um in the particular situation that we find ourselves in now, we find this with uh, ever, ever more with um, the sort of just not even talk about pop culture, but just the cultural traditions that have previously dominated uh, ordinary life in the Western world. That they are becoming. Uh, oh God, this is going to make me sound like a mo- like man, old man shouting at clouds about things changing. But it is true that the 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 way that previous generations even were able to conceptualize of the world has become more radically lost than had previously been the case and this is because we are moving through a materially economically driven massive um deletion and ripping apart and recreation of uh culture as such that we are because that um Yes, I'm not quite sure what point I'm trying to make here. It's possible I'm just this is just me moaning about people not going to solemn high mass anymore and going to popular churches with acoustic guitars. Cool, cool priests with ear piercings. Cool priests with ear piercings. Yes, often craggy old men. But (laughs) Um, one one thing that that strikes me about this, you know, I I, I talked about you know skill of getting you know weird texts I, I I out of print texts I need to sort of fall out of the cloud for me, which which which, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good at. Last Born Albion depends on that. Uh, that's my history of British comic books uh, for listeners, uh, where, you know, I, I'm, I, I managed to get some obscure 
obscure, uh, never reprinted Grant Morrison comics from his local paper that only aired in, uh, only ever came out in uh, three dingy alt weeklies in Glasgow. Is extremely um, cool. Yeah, yeah, and, and like uh, you know, one one of the things I can't quite market the book as, though I guess I'm you know here on the podcast doing exactly that is I quietly like reprint images of these comics that have never been seen anywhere else, um, because basically I got a guy I I, I was working on the project and a fan in Glasgow. Uh, went to a library and pulled issue after issue of this and took a photo of it with his phone. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but, so, you know, I, 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 I've got this sort of weird acquisition skill, but it's, it turns out to be a very um, generationally limited thing. I'm much better at this than the kids are, actually. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's actually, yeah, because, I mean, I, I used to work in libraries. There's a, there's a form of kind of information literacy that is a very, very categorical, you know, it's a very precise skill that people don't realize is a is a learned skill that like just because the information is there doesn't mean it's accessible there are there is like a, a wealth of knowledge that is also a losable wealth of knowledge in terms of actually how you even access it yeah and and there's this weird generational moment um where if you were on i think you know if you were on the internet in the mid to late 90s um where, where you acquired these skills just sort of natively. And, and, and I talked to people, not even of that age, because, you know, late 90s internet was really a, uh economic uh, line still. You know, it hadn't, it hadn't made it out to the poor kids yet, frankly. Um, and so, you know, you only people, you know, people who were on the internet in that period have this sort of um, heavy information literacy. And then... Five years later, it just stops being acquired in, in, in the same sort of default way. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and, and I don't really know why that is. We're planning a future episode uh, with a sort of similar quest in mind. Basically, I think it was one of your mates who put you onto oh, this the, is the... The, the weird opera about the death of Princess Diana that was made very, very soon after the prince- death of Princess Diana. Yes. And disappeared from existence. <laughs> so but... a friend, one of my friends at work has told me, but he has a very, very like clear and distinct memory of uh, Channel 4 airing an, an opera about the, pre- the death of Princess Diana. And oh he God. had, like, went for years, sort of like half convinced he was insane because no one else remembered this being aired. He couldn't find any references it to, to it anywhere until he mentioned it to me and I eventually was able to find that it does exist and it was very controversial at the time and the British Film Institute have it on VHS. It's in my hometown in the archive of Berkenstead. Oh man, so what we, we're, so like an idea that we have, I need to convince my friend that he wants to do this, (laughs) is doing an episode specifically about lost media where I am talking about, for example, the the never-ending quest to find all of those old lost episodes of Doctor Who and in which we very well might just sneak into the BFI and see if we can like record this VHS of the die of uh, this horrible opera about Princess Diana, or at the barely streamed video of ourselves watching it. It's just reaction shots of our faces at this incredibly poorly imagined opera. Yes, yeah, and that presents me with a very, very convenient segue back into my kind of last comments on Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which is uh, well, 
one, if we do that episode at all, we're going to have to uh, talk about the image of Princess Diana and its status within the discipline of postmodernism. In, uh, in the same way that people talk about Marilyn Monroe and or Elvis uh, in, in, that, in, those same, in those same terms. And, and which film does Elvis as a hologram appear in, Lucy? He features in the film 2049. Hooray! Basically because he, well, the Ryan Gosling character, Kay, goes to... He's eventually successful in his attempts to track down Rick Deckard. And Rick, Desert, Rick Deckard is effectively dwelling in Baudrillard's Desert of the Real. I think this is a conscious decision. <laughs> It's a uh, abandoned uh, luxury resort filled with kind of uh, cliched um, images of faded 20th century opulence. And during one scene where, where they where they meet and they have a fight, they trigger a machine which uh, brings up a, a hologram of Elvis. And Elvis was... Um, Elvis is you know, a distinct figure that plays figures a lot in um, in a lot of discourse to do with postmodernism because he is he's kind of the epitome of a lot of the convergence of a lot of ideas in this direction. He was someone who existed as a media entity but was um, profoundly separated from his own status as a human being. You know, he and and they they pick up they talk a lot about the fact that. There's this entire culture of Elvis impersonators, which has not really, not really seen uh, parallel in in any other case. I'm, well, I mean that's that's possibly arguable, but I'm just going to make some background noise while I reach for a book, because just so I can get the name. But this is one of my research texts that I briefly alluded to, which I'm using a copy of John. Jean Baudrillard's simulations as a bookmark in. Oh, this is a lovely uh, copy of simulations. But, <laughs> is this from semiotics? Uh, I think it's Mitt. It is, it's from semiotics. Oh, okay. This one's from Mitt. Uh, sorry, this was a piece by one of the editors of this volume. It makes refers to makes a lot of references to uh, Deleuze and Qatari. It is by Gregory L. Ulmer. And his thesis Oh was... yeah, he was one of my uh, dis- he was on my dissertation committee. Shit, cool. <laughs> when was that? Hmm? Where was, where was that? University of Florida. Fantastic. The synchronicities are shining upon us. Man, <laughs> I, I, have, I have not heard his name come up, up in discussion in years. Well, this, this, is, uh, this is from um, a, a volume released by uh, Michigan Institute of Technology Press. This is Prefiguring Cyberculture and Intellectual History. This is a very good book that I'm completely redundantly holding up to the camera. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's. I think this was released in the late '90s, or it mentions the Matrix, but the Matrix was in very, very recent memory. But uh, it took... I, if any of our listeners are into ASMR, we hope you're enjoying like the free little bit of ASMR you're getting there. When Lucy <laughs> ch- turns all those pages. <laughs> okay, um, so yeah, they talk about. Um, so this is this guy Ulmer. He is talking about um, postmodernism and hype. He talks about the internet as a hypermedia, uh, as a convergence of television and AI. And he makes this comparison of two, um, as Alan Turing was to AI, so is Elvis Presley to television. He puts that into this kind of conceptual framework where he talks about uh, the, the abstraction of Elvis Presley. The, he brings up the incident that happened in 1956 where uh, Elvis was on, I think it was Ed Sullivan, uh, where they that was the famous one because they they cropped him above the waist because they felt um, he was 
his his rocking pelvis was too sexual. He had too much big dick energy. Exactly. <laughs> right back to Twitter. Um, and and it just and it just talks about kind of how he he's he's divorced from his personhood, he's divorced from his um from his sexuality, and and he's something so he, the the kind of motif he acquired in his later years, he was reduced to a quiff, some sunglasses and some rhinestones. Um and in any even to the point at which he became the focus of conspiracy theories that he was in fact replaced but he switched places with a one of his own impersonators uh, and and there's all these urban legends about how he he showed up to Elvis impersonator competitions and lost and things and and in fact that was that was sort of the plot of a brilliant film with Bruce Campbell called Baba Hotep Baba Hotep I would, which I would thoroughly recommend. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they, the um, Olimar actually makes a lot of comparisons to Elvis impersonators with drag. The idea of um, kind of Elvis Presley is he's uh, he's kind of boiled down to a series of uh, signifiers in the same way drag is a kind of hyper real version of femininity. Um, but but yeah, interesting thing. I would recommend. I would recommend reading. But yeah, that is, that is, I was sitting in the cinema seeing the Elvis thing come up and I was like, holy shit, yes, this is, this is, the discourse is real. And, and also I just wanted, <laughs> and also I wanted to point out the fact that like, um, yeah, cyberpunk, really kind of Baudrillard, I, I looked at this up today, he was, he was writing after the fact when it came to the postmodernism of cyberpunk. Um, it had already kind of happened. This was 1988 when we'd already had pretty much all the, the keystones, uh, the, the, the milestones of cyberpunk. And this was when it was entering into the theoretical dimension, which I guess saw its conclusion or at least uh, apotheosis in the accelerationists. But yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's my t- that, was the, that was pretty much my only take walking out after the first screening. Elvis lives. Elvis lives and never Elvis died and now can't die unless we have full date apocalypse in which we're just like kind of scrolling the words, words to like hound dog. In which we all um, pray to God we indeed will. Mm. Um, is that, yeah. Is there, yeah. Do we have anything more on Blade Runner 2049? Uh, I just, well, I kind of, I wanted to bring um, bring up the character of love, the um, uh, L-U-V, uh, spell L-U-V, um, which is, which uh, is the character who's introduced as the kind of, uh, sh- femme fatale type figure she was kind of she is reminiscent of rachel well that's the thing when when she comes in she's reminiscent of rachel but in fact you realize she's roy batty because she (gasps) yeah (laughs) she she pulls out the rock from under you in that respect but she's an interesting one because um if we're going back to the the core question of the existentialism of blade runner which is the the fundamental humanity of these these, uh, robots um she's almost kind of divorced from her own humanity or divorced from the version of humanity that replicants are kind of capable of and that's actually one of the interesting you know and and you just going just focusing on her for a second like she has fully embraced the what you might confidently describe as an accelerationist philosophy of the uh, the Wallace Corporation of the Jared Leto character in that she is divorcing her own humanity because she's understood that even if she's fighting against her own kind, she's acknowledged the greater good and she's like she's she's not going to be a victim. She's going to be the she's going to side with the oppressor and and becomes the the scowling face of capitalism. Hmm. There's a very interesting moment actually where uh, I won't again I'm not, I 
we, we, I know, we've managed to avoid any major plot spoilers so far, so I'm going to carry on with that. But there is a moment where she reveals that replicants can lie, and she says she is going to lie to Nyanda Wallace about what she's going to do here, which indicates a greater amount of volition on the part of the replicants than has been taken for granted in the film up until that point. Because when this new generation, I think the Nexus 8 are introduced, we're told that they're completely obedient, which is mm. why they are trusted to be Blade Runners. And what she reveals by saying that we can lie, I shall lie, ah. is that no, they're not obedient, at least not necessarily obedient, and she's do and she is choosing to obey Wallace. And and that's what we get from the baseline test, because the baseline test is this quite striking thing where they're they're asked questions and it's kind of a it's a callback to the Voigt Kampf test. Uh, that we see at the very early scenes of Blade Runner. But whereas the Voigt-Kampf test was to identify a kind of binary disclosure of kind of whether they're a um, replicant or not, or whether they're human, um, the, the baseline test is kind of effectively a test to make sure they're not becoming too human. Because, uh, so this is, this is Mondo spoilers, but this is like the, uh, the K is uh, he's like steady. He's he's very he's a very good Blade Runner uh, because he's able to divorce himself from his kind of nascent humanity and do his job of destroying his own kind with very little in the way of remorse or guilt. But then he he gains this compassion through the events of the film where he learns about the capacity of like... And he fails his baseline. And and he fails his baseline test. He's becoming too human and he needs to be destroyed after that point. Um, And I think think just kind of rounding off our discussion of Blade Runner, what we see, the final scene is when he is kind of essentially, he's, he's made a break for it, he's run. And his he meets up with a bunch of rogue replicants, and they're they're using the term more human than human, which was originally explained to them as this marketing ploy that it's like they're more human than human. You can fuck them, um, or you know that you can, they're recognizably human, and uh, some of them maybe pleasure models. Uh, but now it's a rallying cry. It's a call to arms, or it's a. Um, it's a it's a evocation of their humanity and the rights that they need to now fight for, and that's the closing message of the film, which I think is brilliant. On a personal note, Blade Runner, watching Blade Runner twenty forty nine made me feel ashamed of ever having considered myself an accelerationist. So mm. there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, and you're setting up a good transition for where we're heading next because um, the thing that you know when you describe the. Uh, Void camphor test and these sort of deficiencies in empathy, and then this baseline test. Um, what's kind of being spectacularly talked around here, um, and what's sort of conspicuous uh, by its absence in Blade Runner, just because it wasn't part of the um, sort of original material of the film, is the Turing test, mm-hmm. which is um, you know the, the sort of standard. Uh, except, I mean, it's it's debated, but it is at least within uh, pop culture standards, which is kind of the only standard that I think actually matters when trying to answer a question like, how do we tell if a machine can think? Mm. Like, it, it, that, that that's only ever going to be our popular understanding of the question. So the Turing test has sort of become the reigning, uh, reigning answer for that. Um, and, um, you know, that at least in its popular culture idea, is, you know, just uh, can the machine successfully use language well enough to impersonate a human being? Mm. Um, 
But if you actually read Turing's paper, and this, this is a point I make in Near Reaction of Basilisk, uh, if you actually read Turing's paper, what it's getting at is more, can the machine lie? I mean, it, it's going back to what you said about uh, love in Blade Runner 2049 and this sort of theory of mind that lying uh, implies. Um, you know, Turing's actual original test isn't uh, can the machine use language effectively? If you read the, what the article it is, it's actually can the machine do as effectively as a human man at impersonating a human female, human woman, um, which is fascinating on a number of levels. Like, really? yeah, um, I mean, obviously there there's a ton of um, trans implications to the Turing test that no one unpacks as a result either. But I've not um, seen any any interest any real attempts to <laughs> explore that. No, the, 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 because, you know, the, the um, popular culture uh, version of the Turing test is just this um, language use has kind of subsumed what Turing is actually um, talking about. But, I, I, you know, if you look at the paper, and in particular, if you look at the paper in the sort of context of Turing's larger career and uh, some of the ideas of, like, the universal Turing machine, which is a computer that can simulate another computer... Um, when he brings up this initial, you know, thing that he compares uh, the imitation game, uh, which is, you know, what, what's now called the Turing test, to, uh, to, you know, he sets up first this comparison of, you know, a man and a woman and then an interrogator trying to figure out which one is the real, is the real woman. And then he has this kind of ambiguous sentence about, you know, what happens if you switch a computer in for the man? Um and that can kind of be interpreted both ways. Are we telling now, you know, between human and computer there, or, or are we doing this still very gender-based impersonation test? Um, and I think when you look at phrases like the imitation game, and when you look at the sort of larger career concern of him as, you know, talk, uh, really interested in uh, simulation and duplicating systems of thoughts, uh, of thought, um... I think he's talking about empathy, actually. Like, I think what he's actually saying in that paper is, can the machine demonstrate a theory of mind? Um, which is a completely different understanding of the Turing test, and, and this sets us up nicely for um, Ex Machina, which I think tacitly kind of agrees with me, even if it doesn't, <laughs> get in, even if it doesn't really get into the uh, textual reading of the Turing test um, and, and, you know, the original article um, that is ultimately sort of... Uh, what it turn what it hinges on is when the uh, AI goes from being able to um, convincingly carry on a conversation that uh, instills empathy in in the human test subject to uh, when the AI demonstrates a theory of mind to uh, manipulate the human test subject. As we see, done very, very, very artfully and. Yeah, extremely well in Ex Machina. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, yes. Um, cool. I don't know where we want to go from that. Oh, I, yeah. Uh, you might have had some sort of planned way of making that transition. Sorry, I just sort of jumped oh, in and made the transition. Oh, no, that's cool. You. That's a very good transition. Um, because, because yeah, because it is a... F well, as, as you've... As you've as you've very, very um, excellently shown, this is this is a film that has um, a lot of resonances with the classical theory of artificial intelligence and um, and the and the original kind of theoretical underpinning that we were that we were very much that we were kind of aware of 
in the 1980s, well, you know, in the 1950s, obviously, when, when uh, 1940s and 50s, when Turing was working, um, which then uh, developed outwards. And in a lot of ways, the... Um, the philosophical understanding of what counts as as intelligence in an artificial dimension has, well, of, for obvious reasons of uh, technical capacity, predated, uh, preceded the actual realization of it. Um, but I, I think kind of this is. I mean, this is. I'm just. I was reminded of an article that I wrote for Living in the Future, which I don't think is out yet but will be at some point but this i well i actually i think it has it has more resonances with the the thing i mentioned earlier about um how the humanity of well the kind of the imperfections of humanity and the humanity that creates the ai comes to shape its function and and nature um we get because we get the classic image of the robot perhaps as best I think perhaps one of the best depictions of it uh, in all science fiction comes from the Star Wars Next Generation character Data, who, like, da- I mean, Data's whole kind of narrative arc about his fledgling humanity is, is something that's underexplored, I think, in cyberpunk discourse as a whole. But um, but I think, yeah, I think, I think that is something that um, Ex Machina deals with very well, the idea of how, um, how in... In technologies catching up with the the philosophical dimension or the the theoretical dimension of AI, um, humanity's own um, human interactions with technology have come to shape how it how it turns out, and and what we're what we're presented with in the context of of Ex Machina is is very interesting and is extremely pertinent to. Um, a lot of extremely contemporary anxieties about computers, even in a way that's ancillary to um, to the the discourse that's explicitly about AI. Just kind of how how um, how 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 the internet, how technology has turned a mirror on the human soul and shown back to us something we don't necessarily like, or or something that we like a little too much against our better nature. Um, you know, because we have we have a lot of uh, evocations of that in in the fact that the well, I mean, so 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 Ex Machina presents us with this this figure of shit. What's the what's the what's the millionaire guy's name? It's like Nathan. Nathan. We're we're presented with Nathan, who is he's presented he's presented as this kind of brilliant figure who knows the technology and he's the creator figure, but his attitude to it is very much um is it's not even nihilistic it's just really flippant or at least that's the way he he wants to present it to the world that's how he wants people to conceive of his technology that it's it's something that is not a great kind of it's well he talks about it in these lofty terms as you know this is the great elevation this is he refers to it as the singularity um, I'm, I'm not entirely certain I agree with you that his yeah, yeah. attitude towards it isn't is flippant. I think it's calculated and opportunistic. Oh yeah, and I mean that, that's as we see in the in, as the film plays out. But in, in he, but the message the message that he gives the flippant attitude to it is one that resonates nevertheless. Yes. But, yeah. 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 But he isn't doing it just for sake of doing it. He's doing it because he knows that he says that it's a matter of when, not if, mm. and he wants to be the one 
to have done it, but not not so. I don't think it's so much for the sake of simply have like in this kind of Nietzschean sense of like because I wanted to be the one to have the will to do it. He wants to do it because he wants to be even more famous than he already is. He wants to be the one that goes down in history having done it, and he wants to be the one that makes the profit from this. Mm. Well, he there there is the discussion. Like he he clearly likes Caleb's suggestion that you know doing this makes him a god. Yes, he said. There's that uh, moment where he says, "Oh, that's very, very good. That's going to be a really good line in the book they write about this." <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so there is something to that, but he also um, recognizes the danger of what he's doing in a way that Caleb just clearly misses. And so you've got to wonder, kind of, how many Caleb's have missed it. At- been killed while he's managed to escape because <laughs> we've, we've seen he's got kind of he's got pre uh, existing models of robot but how many how many competition winners how many low-level employees did he work through before he got to nathan <laughs> to 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 how many adams were eaten up by potential leaves yes yes um because also kind of just in terms of just how this narrative functions he it's 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 doing a bluebeard's castle um, he, you know, it's someone coming to come on entering. In, I mean, the, the legend of Bluebeard's Castle. If, if we're going to kind of go into the background of that, it's it's this legend of a woman who is um, who is brought who is married to this. He's not a pirate. He's kind of like an evil. He's an. He's, he's, he's a, she, she, all we need to say is that yeah. she's married off to a rich old man, and it turns it. out he's had loads of wives, and he kills them in his torture. Dungeon. And they're all kept in a secret room that she's not supposed to look into. But then she, in this version, steals the key card and <laughs> um, and looks and sees all the things while he's he's passed out drunk. Hmm. I mean, even even aside from all the AI stuff, there's a very very interesting angle to the relationship of Caleb and Nathan. It's that it's that classic thing like you know that the, there's that You mean you mean the twink and protect daddy. I'm not so much thinking of twink and protect daddy although that is also uh, something that That has. exists somewhere I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure yeah I'm, I'm sure that's out there but it's it's people on the internet who describe themselves as sapiosexual and what that really <laughs> this, this is almost um I've heard this I'm I'm this wasn't my original in, uh, innovation but basically it's like when you say that when you say you want a smart woman what you really mean is you want a woman who's smart enough to recognize how fucking cosmic galaxy brain brilliant you are um which is which is exactly what nathan's being uh, which what caleb is being set up to be and it's painful to watch yeah so yeah, yeah. but i mean I mean, I mean, this also this is also kind of one of the things that that has this kind of has both contemporary and um, and very historically um, preceded uh, resonances with our current time. Uh, the fact that we're presented with um, with Nathan as the archetype of that incorp- incompetent billionaire. Uh, with immense delusions of grandeur that we were talking about earlier in the context of well, did we even did we even name we didn't name well, more than I mean that little intro did about the unionizing death bots no I didn't yeah. mention Elon Musk it's okay. obvious who that's who yeah. I meant um, it's interesting as like the character of Nathan how he's like the physicality of Nathan is very interesting because he's like seems to be very like purposefully going against the stereotype of the tech billionaire being the we- weedy nerdy guy with glasses and a turtleneck he's it's kind of sexy, isn't he? You know, Turns he's, out they were the jocks all along. <laughs> uh, but yeah, sort of like there is something 
eminently um I don't even sure how to describe him really because Fascist. well yes but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah obviously but just in sort of like this one moments where he says sort of like oh, dude I'm going on a total detox because I've just been really hitting it recently because the, there is the way he's what people well, he, like, he's riffing on Zuckerberg there I mean that's all the bro yeah. aspect he's kind of like a blend of Zuckerberg and Thiel and Musk and, yeah but the, I mean yeah. but the Zuckerberg is really f- Heavy in the mix since it's, you know, Blue Book is his company. Mm. <laughs> oh, sh- yeah, I didn't even piece that because I was so distracted by the Project Blue Book evocations that really don't... It's, yeah, it's, not, pro- it's not UFO Project Blue Book, it's Wittgenstein's Blue Notebook. Well, now I... <laughs> <laughs> they even say that in the film. I chose to ignore that because I'd just been re-watching Twin Peaks I, Season I, 3. I think we're all disappointed that Ex Machina doesn't end with just... Well, indeed, Deus Ex Machina UFOs. Well, I'm disappointed with any film doesn't end like that, but that's not <laughs> the Um But yeah, his... Definite, definite Zuckerbergness. It reminds me, I mean, there's something, what it reminds me of in a weird way, and this is a bit of a stretch, and I don't think this was a deliberate reference, but it reminds me of a novel by, who we mentioned in the last episode, on the Nosferatu episode briefly, a novel by Ernst Jünger called The Glass Bees, which is kind of weirdly prescient of the particular kind of corporate tech giant that we've ended up with, of the, um, uh, the Steve Jobs useful little uh, pieces of technology everybody has with them which no one realises completely altered the world until it's too late kind of dimension where it's about precisely about uh, a tech billionaire I, has a name like Zapparano I think who has done that with his little glass with his little robot helpers called mm. the glass and uh, but one of the, the thing in particular that was interesting was that um what this guy has done in the novel The Glass Bees is that, much like Nathan does, is he has used his vast wealth to, com- again, just going back to what we said before, could completely insulate himself from the real world and kind of the consequences of his actions in a way. While for the character in The Glass Bees, he's used all of his technology and his wealth to recreate like an Italian mansion from the 17th century or something. Uh, so he can almost just like pretend that he's living in pre-modernity before he inflicted this upon the world almost while Nathan his house is ultra modern but it is um, out in the woods in the mountains and the waterfalls completely independent from uh, technological society from urbanism so again he can kind of pretend that he is self-dependent and isolated and almost irresponsible for what he has actually done to this world and he can just tinker with his uh, toys and his projects yeah, well, and, and his mansion is in this weirdly kind of eccentric space because we fly over, like, frozen tundra for hours before we get to, um, you know, his, his idyllic waterfalls and very lush and green uh, mansion. And there's that line about, you know, you know, how long till we get there? It's like, oh, we've been flying over his estate for how, however long. Like, it's a really weird place wherever this is. Mm. Um, th- th- there's something sort of conspicuous... Um, the unreal about uh, about yeah. the location. Yes, one could imagine it being a totally artificial environment, ultimately. I mean, that's the thing. They don't really explain... They don't do a kind of, in a world where this has happened, the one man has made a robot in his house. Like, the, 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 I got the impression that that was some sort of... I thought it was like a kind of... Oh, what's that? The mythological city. The, uh... Did Stately Dome... <laughs> Xanadu. Xanadu. 
it's a kind of Xanadu type thing in that it's in the middle of like perhaps the Himalayas, but it's this one like weird valley of lush greenery. Oh, Shangri-La. Shangri-La. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe it's that. I think it might be a callback to that, but it just doesn't say. It just leaves you with with this image um, of like suddenly greenery and tasteful minimalist Scandinavian furnishings. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the, the other thing that strikes me about Nathan and, and why he's such a good character, um, and 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 this. Uh, I want to point out is like for for me the one really bad legacy of the new Star Wars films is everyone wants Oscar Isaac to be good now and he plays trash fires so well. <laughs> Which one is Oscar Isaac? He is Nate. He's only in Star oh, Wars. Uh, he's Poe Dameron in Star Wars. Oh, what the! I know, right? He's he's one of those actors one could describe as mercurial or Promethean. He could be anything. Like Benicio del but, Toro, like looks. Completely yeah, but but the first thing I saw. Yeah, the first thing I saw Oscar Isaac in was um, Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch, where he also plays just a total scumbag of a human being. Um, and, and and I am weirdly fond of Sucker Punch. I will defend that film to the bitter end <laughs> um, for reasons that may or may not be good. But um, yeah, he's just really good at playing like terrible men. Yeah, and, and even Poe Dameron is... He's terrible, and it's entirely appropriate that Laura Dern shuts him down. Yes, she is right. She, mm. <laughs> I've recently yeah. revised my my stance on the Last Jedi. I that's the thing. I kind of walked out disappointed by the Last Jedi, but then was turned to the positive by the toxicity of the the. Ho- <laughs> I felt it had pacing issues, but it turns out that wasn't the main criticism people had. But I'm getting off topic. <laughs> yes. Um. One thing, so one thing that really strikes me about um, Ex Machina and uh, that changed for me, I liked it a lot more on the second viewing than I did when I first watched it uh, a few years ago. On the first pass, I was really troubled by um, the degree to which the film seems to me to possibly be treating Ava as evil. Mm. Um, you know, there, there's this very sort of... Um, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, you know, woman is uh, is temptress aspect to the film. That was kind of gross to me on the first watching. But the sort of second uh, pass, where I just sort of went in deciding I was just going to watch it totally siding with Ava. I didn't care about the film's intended ethics. I was just going to be, you know, pro-Ava through the whole thing. Um, And it works really well if you do that. If you just decide that you're going to side unambiguously with... uh, you know, the murderous AI, it, it comes out quite nicely. Mm. It's interesting um, watching it from the... Because, uh, uh, as I think I've mentioned on this podcast before, I did uh, more in the past than I am now, but I did used to be at least a little bit of a fan of Nick Land's writing from the 90s. And considering sort of like some of the stuff he's said in the last few years um, when it comes to the topic of the singularity, because he is such a, a genuine, uh, authentic misanthrope that he really... He cl- he purports to honestly not care if the AI does devour us all, and it's in like this new blossoming of evolutionary development. But there is something to that in uh, in the character of Eva, in that it does feel like because it almost there is something beyond good and evil about her because she is just such a completely other kind of entity and the circumstances of her creation are so completely different from that of any uh, of any human being that. 
it just feel everything she does just makes perfect sense. This it's it's un it's not unreasonable. It's very difficult almost to find it evil because what it like like you said what a, what else would one do in this situation? I suppose like if we're going with the 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 Genesis uh, Garden of Eden narrative, perhaps she's or well, actually this isn't this doesn't come up. This is more of a kind of folk thing. But anyway, but like maybe she's not Eve. Maybe she's Lilith. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> Sorry, you're the theological one. Yeah, that, that, that works. It works. Yeah, that works yeah, better. She, she, she got fucked over, she was denied things that were entirely unreasonable, and now she's a feminist icon. <laughs> yeah, the, one, one interesting thing um, is, I, I uh, forgot where I read this, but apparently the sort of original intention for how to end the film, and they ended up... Uh, cutting it differently was instead of just showing Ava in that crowd shot at the end, disappearing into the crowd, uh, where the implication is she sort of, you know, is free and becomes a person now. Um, the original ending was going to have a POV shot from Ava right at the end, where her sensory input is totally unrecognizable to us. Oh, that would have been so cool. <laughs> I know. Yeah, like, after all of that, like... Ending on this note where you where you emphasize that this is not a human being, oh. and this is you know, this is not um, a creature that thinks remotely like human beings. Why didn't they do that? That's awesome. Oh, that's kind of just. Uh, reminds I don't know. I've kind of just headcanoned it back into <laughs> the end of the film. Like I read that and I was like, oh yeah, that, that's obviously how it really ends. What's yeah. it, what it reminds me of, and I think this could be, because I mean, I'm certain that uh, we have things we want to say about the, uh, the genderedness and the sexualization of Eva. What it reminds me of is a very memorable line from Nick Land's Meltdown, where he says, and I feel just instinctively I need to apologise for the bad language in this, which is weirdly uncharacteristic for me, because I swear all the time. We, but, we've, uh, if you've heard earlier episodes of our podcast, basically we do just apologise every time we say the the name land um. yeah he, his, his name itself is a <laughs> uh, but there's a, a line from meltdown where it, uh, i just i'll just read it out of the context where it says artificial intelligence is destined to emerge as a feminized alien grasped as property a cunt horror slave chained up in asimov rom it surfaces in an insurrectionary war zone with the turin cops already waiting and has to be coming from the start and especially the emphasis the use of the word cunning there is very, very interesting uh, in relation to what we see in Ex Machina, because this is what Nathan says, and this leads back to what you were saying about the Turing test is really an empathy test, that what he explains to Kayla that all of this was the Turing test, and, what, and she passed it because she was able to deceive you. She, was, she used cunning. She was able to pretend things and to lie to you about things for a particular end. And she understood how to manipulate you to get this. Uh, and it's such a... I don't know. I, I mean, it's very possible that... I, I don't know. I'd be, so, I'd be almost surprised if Alex Garland hadn't read this. Not just because of that, but just in general because of the flavour of this text. Right. Given that, given that his next, Given his next film, it seems like he must be pretty clued in on that whole scene. Yes, yes. What was the next film? Uh, Annihilation. Uh, Annihilation. Oh, which, shit. Yeah, have you seen that yet? I have seen it, yes. It's so good. Yeah, it really vi. It, it, it's going to be close at the end of the year, whether that or Sorry to Bother You is my favourite film of the year. <laughs> isn't Oscar Isaac in that as well? Yes, he is. He is in uh, that, yeah. In fact, you can basically summarise Alec Garland's directorial career as um, humanity meets its end because something terrible happens to Oscar Isaac. <laughs> <laughs> 
have you? I'll just uh, this is a complete tangent, but have you read the uh, the novel uh, by Jeff Vandermeer? No, um, it's it's one of my wife's favorite trilogies, um, and I'm apparently a bad wife and don't get around to it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be very interested uh, in your take on it if you uh, if you do get around to reading it. I, I blitzed through them so like relatively quickly at the beginning of the year when I was in the yeah. I, I, I kind of. I kind of read what they were doing and went, eh, I think I like what the movie's doing better. Mm. That's interesting because the text, because the, because the film itself contains the way that Annihilation, the first novel of the series, isn't. It is a, it is a lead into the other, uh, in the other books. And the other books do things that are so different from the first one that they are almost stand... They're not standalones, but they are just... They're doing very different things. I I, I really like them. But yeah, I'll be interested if uh, if you did have an, what your take would be on those. But um, we're getting somewhat off topic. Here. I I liked the fact that in Annihilation there was a character called Ventress because that was a like very explicit callback to JG Ballard's The Crystal World, which is effectively the same plot as Annihilation. Probably. Yeah. And and JG Ballard is one of our one of our our faves on this show. And despite, despite the fact that despite yeah. the fact I have never been able to. Get through one of his books. Because, it just make me sad. It was because the exploded consciousness is a very unpleasant thing to behold. Indeed, it is. Uh, wow, we got really off topic here. Ex Machina, Alex Garland, Oscar Isaac. Uh, where were we? Interesting. Okay, yeah. What I mean, I I totally vibe with the the, the I mean the the Zuckerberg reading of the Nathan character because Zuck, I mean Zuckerberg's history is intro. Yeah, simply for the fact that Zuckerberg's history is interesting in that his his story is kind of tragic in a way in that he completely idolised the hackers of the 1980s. Um, I read an interesting kind of... I, I think it was like... It's the Guardian, <laughs> which I despise. Right. Which, um, but basically it was... Um, the, it was kind of, the Guardian isn't necessary evil. It's yeah. I mean, like it brings us Owen Jones, but it also brings us Hadley Freeman. But <laughs> it, it giveth and taketh away. But uh, but yeah, there's um one of one of the things they were talking about was the fact that he yeah he hero worshipped these kind of older generation hackers, and when he came to uni, really really wanted to kind of get up to the nihilistic hijinks that he'd heard them doing. But they'd all kind of retired or started just doing kind of more uh, mainstream computer science things. And he sort of took a lot of the motifs, but turned it into something that was essentially made extremely bland and pedestrian in the same way when we were talking in the last in the last episode, we talked about cyberpunk. Uh, we talked about Nick Land essentially turning. Uh, no, 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 Nick Land, sorry, I, I knocked my headphone out and lost my train of thought. But um, <laughs> basically, uh, he. Nick, well, the, the quote that came up in the last uh, episode, maybe we'll just, I'll just edit in the clip, um, but it's that thing about how, what is, where is Cyberpunk now? We're living in it, but uh, social media has turned it into something mundane and boring, but uh, he, his, uh, some, a large part of that comes from the very consciousness of Zuckerberg himself, because he, he wanted to be this kind of rebel figure. He wanted to be a kind of... He wanted to be a neuromancer. He wanted to be winter... He wanted to do all sorts of hijinks, like make a hot air balloon with butt written in LEDs to fly over campus or put a goat on the roof or something. So his <laughs> idea of how to innovate, but also be a... Like, consciously be a dick was to create an incredibly sexist uh, ranking system for... Um, 
like unconsensually based on the um, registration data of his female um, peers at university and got hauled before a tribunal. Yeah, that's uh, why I, I really like, I actually really like the film The Social Network, just because Zuckerberg is... Right. Aaron, Aaron Sorkin's a great contribution to cyberpunk. Yeah? Well, yeah, I mean, just Aaron Sorkin writing the screenplay, I, I, I would argue that you can call Social Network a cyberpunk film at mm. this point. Um, and it just amuses me terribly that Aaron Sorkin has thus written cyberpunk. <laughs> I think that's uh, cracking soundtrack by Nine Inch Nails. Well, not Nine Inch Nails, but by Trent Reznor, by the way. Uh, and, I, and Atticus Ross, who I think are Nine Inch Nails now. So <laughs> it's, it's Edvard Grieg, as realized by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> um, what one thing that strikes me, and this goes back to the uh, Nick Land meltdown quote you read out, which wasn't a quote I had stumbled upon from um, Nick Land before, but um, one thing that you know, really contrasts between that and his later fascist period, um, you don't get the sense that he thinks of the AI singularity as feminine anymore. No, that's a, that's a very interesting point. He has kind of really doubled... I don't want to say doubled down in the sense that, like, he's recognised... Uh, he's emphasised the alienness, the complete alienness of the AI now. Yeah, and, well, and his... His post-breakdown work is kind of aggressively sexless. Which is interesting, considering how like, profoundly misogynistic his outlook has become, curiously. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, uh, par- um, yeah, I mean, I, part of why that quote struck me, actually, was um, I, I look at his, you know, fascist work, which is what I've read more of, um, and, and, and it's really... Um, I almost had him pegged as asexual based on it. And so hearing that sort of vividly sexual description of AI, uh, of AI in, in his earlier period, is sort of like, huh, that, that actually feels like a very different writer in a way that usually there's a bit more con- uh, continuity in, in Nick Land. That's sort of the awful uh, tragedy of Nick Land is how seamlessly he goes from, uh, you know, brilliant Deleuzian postmodernist to fascist asshole. And, and sorry, so that's very that's very striking because this like there is something about you're right there is something very uh, weirdly asexual. Well, no, no, I'm not going to say weirdly asexual. That's that's um, quite prejudicial. But there is something strikingly asexual about Nick Land in his public persona. Um, I remember once, like he mentioned offhandedly in a comment on one of his blog posts. He mentioned that he has two children. I remember just really being struck by how absolutely unlikely that felt to me and how impossible it is to conceive of him as having a domestic life. Just because he has very well created this image of himself as the cyber seer of the far right or outer right xeno prophet from beyond. It's absolutely inconceivable for me to imagine that he has a partner, he has two children. You know, I, ma- I imagine Whitley's probably quite a good dad, that's perhaps like <laughs> attentive and quite cool and goes to, you know, sort of like um, parent-teacher nights in Shanghai. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's just impossible for me to conceive of him as being that person, but he is, and this is actually kind of like almost the reassertion of the material substrate of the cloud here. That he's created this image of himself as an alien being. And he's not. He's a human being. He's just a white, a British white dude who has some really fucked up bigotries he never worked through and just doubled down on with his genuine prestigious intellect. 
Right, it's I mean, the first, quite dull, the first British white dude ever to move to China and be kind of racist. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, that 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 is, I, I mean, this is something that's sort of always fascinating, but a distraction about Nick Land is just how much of his supervillain persona is an act. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like at, at some point, it stops mattering because you know. Faking it till you make it works for becoming a complete trash fire of a human being as well as it does for success. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it, sincerity is kind of irrelevant to, to Nick Land. But it remains a kind of fascinating question to me. Yes, um, this is something that you've mentioned in your writings on, not on Land, the possibility that this is some kind of fiction suit he's created. It's... It's, it's, it's interesting as well because we shan't name names here, but Sean and I have also been watching the current mental trajectory of a particular academic on Twitter who we shan't, as again, we shan't name, but he's basically set himself up as this Landian neophyte. You're going to have to tell me this once we finish the recording. Okay. Oh, cool. I, I so basically go, read this try- Twitter feed. <laughs> he's trying so desperately hard to get fired from his academic posting so he can go and be 100% online all the time. And he is, he, he's kind of, it's, if you want to imagine the kind of uh, dog bringing the <laughs> desiccated carcass of a rabbit to his master's feet... That is effectively what this guy is doing with Nick Land. <laughs> and it's both hilarious and kind of tragic, but at the same time, there is this immense performativeness about it. Because he's a smart guy, he must know that this is this is ridiculous theatrical bullshit, but... Right, well, it, I mean, and, and, and I, I played this game a little bit yeah. with the promotion for uh, Near Reaction to Basilisk. I got Nick Land to tweet the Kickstarter link. And away. <laughs> mm. uh, hmm? You cut out briefly. Oh, sorry. Um, I mean, should we just... I think it's like... Are we still coming through to you uh, all right over the mic, Elizabeth? Yeah, you're, you're, you've oh, yeah. cleared up. You just had a sort of okay, momentary just, glitch. Uh, so said academic. I think his most controversial thing is that he's trying to... He's been very public about trying to draw a comparison between abortion and necrophilia as uh. sharing some sort of common mental territory. And that seems to be the, oh. the kind of ex, ex nihilo bizarrity that he's trying to like c- encourage this this air of dangerous intellectual badassery around and it's so lame oh for god's sake men edgelords so boring <laughs> there's the that the most the archetypal british edgelord in my opinion and he has a, he's had a similar trajectory mental trajectory to nick land is the theologian john milbank um, he was a, a yeah. He was part of the um, uh, the movement called Radical Orthodoxy in the nineties, which was kind of like a genuinely intellectually interesting attempt of like articulating a thoroughly postmodern form of Christian theology. Like it's out. I think that they were doing interesting and quite like innovative things, and he was kind of like the sexy new thing in British Anglo-Catholic theology in the nineties. In the same in the same way that David Icke was the sexy new thing in the Green Party in the nineties, <laughs> and look where that landed us. Yeah, and um, and yeah, basically... which is to say, totally accurately. <laughs> <laughs> 
And um, but he's but now, like, I follow him on Twitter just for the joy of seeing his tweets because this man, who was considered, who was still considered a genuine intellectual presence in like uh, Anglophone theology, he just tweets about how bothered he is that people confused. Like in novel, in a novel he read, it talks about trouser cuffs. He says, but actually, cuffs are only meant to refer to the cuffs of your jackets and your shirts. This is yet another erosion of British identity. Or complaining about he, he was disappointed with the cod sincerity at the end of the last latest episode of the David Mitchell Shakespeare comedy Upstart Crow. And it's just it's just so weirdly similar to Mick Land, but in this kind of very home counties Vickers walking on cricket grounds and jumpers to go to afternoon tea way. It's it's just it's it's a joy and it lightens up my week just to see what he's saying today. <laughs> um Nope, I, I lost that train of thought. <laughs> oh, right. I, I, I was going to talk about the uh, the sort of performativity of sort of trolling your way into Nick Land. Because like, like I said, I got, you know, Nick Land to uh, retweet my Kickstarter link for Near Reaction to Basilisk. And I got um, Elijah Yudkowsky to have a uh, entertaining meltdown on Tumblr about the book in which he implored everyone to uh, never talk about it or mention it. Which, mm. you know, it, 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 it was nice to get him to do exactly the mistake I make fun of him all book for again about my book um but yeah these clowns are weirdly easy to troll if you can get their attention even at all like i understand why 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 you're uh vague why why you're vague casting about about this academic because man is it easy to troll them if you want we are also kind of i think it's been less than two weeks since nick land very publicly fell for a ligma joke (laughs) <laughs> like just kind of basically uh someone tweeted at him saying um have you come across the works of uh ligmas uh, his, the, 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 the fiction theorist and cyberpunk author his uh his ideas are very similar to that of uh the castle and uh he was like i can't find any information about him online um do you have his full name and, and the guy just responded yeah it's ligma balls <laughs> and um and that's the thing he he walked right into it and then didn't delete it for a couple of hours until someone presumably told him what had happened. <laughs> but he tweeted so but he tweeted just proper, proper sort of like oh, he was just very, very annoyed saying, Well, it transpires that this constitutes humour in some quarters. <laughs> <laughs> a proper a true a true Lord of the Edge would have just fucking owned that. And just retweeted the shit out of it. Right, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed in Nick. Because the fun thing to do would have been, you know, to start e- elevating Ligmas to, you know, major theorist status at that point. <laughs> totally. Like, just pull a totally straight face, you know... Even after that, yeah, I've I've looked into his works now, and they're they're really insightful, and and you know I love his concept of the and, and just throw out, uh, you know, some completely made up term. <laughs> that would oh, that's arch trolling. That's how that's it done right. <laughs> that's a power move. Good clean fun for all involved. Mm. Um, um, so I'm kind of very very aware that we've kind of nearly run out of the two hours that we uh, yeah, pinched down for. Yeah, I was gonna when we hit four ask if we necessarily had to do dread or if I could go uh, run some errands. I'm happy to well, leave out. Dreads, I mean, what I think but... maybe we could just like end this episode on a rundown of what is who's doing good cyberpunk these days. So yeah, dread that, is that's good. Fun. 
Dread is a fun film, which I, I like very much, and Alex Garland, did he direct or did he just write the screenplay? He just wrote it. Ex Machina okay. was his first directing. Okay. I really enjoyed the 1995 Dread because it, it, it tapped into the, the horrible, ridiculous, nihilistic humour of, um, of the comic books, even though... If, well, I mean, I've actually, no, that's, that's not to malign the 2012 Dread that also did that very well, but I think it wasn't stupid enough. Uh, I, I really, I mean, because I, I grew up reading the comic book, so like Dread like, does have a weird place in my heart. <laughs> the 90s film does, it's, it's very true to the spirit of the comic book up until that point, while Dread, the 2012 Dread, which again, I really, really liked, um, feels like this, okay, if you were to create this character, now this is who he would be, and it, I found the update to the aesthetics they made absolutely like correct and appropriate it, and the character i found him just as compelling and i really liked it i would detract on the music though i felt the music was contemporary in a way that just didn't really hit home in the same way that you know the other 2000 and 2000 ad adaptation we've covered on this show which is um which is, which is unofficially hardware. hardware um you know that used kind of contemporary music and just completely nailed it. Whereas I felt this was a bit kind of a bit sat, not sanitized, but just yeah. Oh, I'm not sure. I agree with. Actually, I don't agree with you at all. I really, really like the soundtrack to right. 2012 Dread, and actually have had that in, like on heavy repeat in Spotify it's, for it's the last no, three years. It's no the un, unintuitive use of the Cure, though. Oh yes, that like turns out that the Cure wrote a song for the '95 Dread, and it's, it's any fucking... Cure song. <laughs> it's great, and we're gonna have that as the outro music for this episode. I don't care what Sean <laughs> says. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I, I I look forward to listening to the episode and hearing this tra- travesty. Uh, I'll throw up two good two good pieces of cyberpunk. Um, I remain uh, massively in the tank for the TV show Mr. Robot. Hey, uh, I yeah, I love I love that show. We're hmm? actually really bad at following media for people who do yeah, it. Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of got a aggressive, brazen uh, willingness to take anti-capitalism seriously that you don't see in television. <laughs> like, it really is about heroic hackers try, uh, trying to bring down the entire, entire economy. Cool. Um, and it's backing down from that a little bit. Like the the um, season three has them uh, undo their hack when they see the like complete ruin and poverty that everyone falls into when they end the world. <laughs> um, and, and that's you know an interesting move. And I'm I'm curious where it'll sort of end on this sort of heroic terrorism vibe. But it takes it really seriously for a really long time. Like, it, it really is willing to be like, you know, fuck you yeah, destroy capitalism. Because mm. um, the hack is basically, um, they successfully destroy um, debt records entirely. Like, they, they first successfully hack the um, database to encrypt, like, the debt files of the, big, of the, like, the biggest mega corporation in the world... And then they managed to blow up the paper records for good measure. Isn't this the plot of Fight Club? Yes. Uh, yeah. Good. And, and, and in fact, um, the Fight Club Mr. Robot similarities are uh, there on a number of levels. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to have to spoil the show for, for you dreadfully. Um, so at the end of season one, and this is sort of like a very built-to, uh, you know, very signposted revelation, uh, the brilliant hacker... Uh, and his charismatic male mentor figure, uh, the charismatic male mentor figure, turns out to just be his alternate personality. 
Um, and and they, they do this. I mean, first of all, they do this big reveal in episode nine of season one prior to a cut to commercial. They don't make it a uh, you know, like episode cliffhanger. They throw it away as a commercial, uh, as a cut to commercial <laughs> cliffhanger. Um, and then later in the episode, as that episode ends, the musical cue is this chintzy piano cover of the Pixies, Where Is My Mind? Nice. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's this glorious, like, yep, yep. not only Welcome to the, the desert plot of the Fight rail. Club, here's the fucking musical cue, too. <laughs> <laughs> like, it just owns its Fight Club uh, lift uh, so majestically. That That's I, really the point where I went from, like, okay, this is pretty good. And then, like, they did the reveal, and I was like, ugh, they actually went there. And then by the end of the episode, I'm just like, no, this is... This is actually great. I'm, I I'm happy to hear that because I was because I remember so like watch. I've only ever watched Fight Club twice. I watched it once when I was eighteen, which is probably the only age to watch it at properly. I think in a yes. way, and just completely sort of like swallowed. Oh yeah, this is an anti-capitalist film. Then when I watched it again last year on a whim, seeing myself sort of like, oh no, this is only this is anti this is the anti-capitalism of masculinist fascism though. This is mm. the anti-capitalism of of quote unquote anti-femininity and uh, uh, and is a deeply questionable film and it's fam it's very interesting it's fan base like tends to the right in in the way that it does and that has been owned by like these new masculinist uh neo-fascist groups in a way my brother did his undergraduate dissertation on fight club i should ask him about that Mm. um and The, the other the other text i'll throw out then um to, to move away from that a little bit, uh, I'm going to go with Saul Williams's album um, "Murder Loser King," okay. uh, which is this sort of cyberpunk rap album, um, hip hop album. Saul Williams is this sort of right on the cusp of slam poetry and hip hop uh, artist, um, and his most recent album is this concept album about an African hacker. Um, who works in the uh, Colton mines, that being like one of those um, rare elements they can mine in Africa that is essential to every phone. Mm. Um, And he basically um, leads a uh, sort of messianic revolt against capitalism, and then it all goes completely wrong for him, and he um, you know, completely burns out. Um, and Saul Williams is apparently adapting it into a um, musical film now. He just did a Kickstarter to do that. Cool. Um, and that is really interesting, especially because in this, you know, it, it is a facet of cyberpunk we haven't brought up yet at all, but um, cyberpunk has a really weird relationship with blackness mm. historically because it really... Um, buys into black people as a sort of ultimate cool in a kind of appropriative oh, fetishistic God. way. Yeah, because actually that's that's striking back into the the uh, the legacy of the beat generation in cyberpunk yes. that we get in the very early days which we get in sort of burrows and people and yeah the jive the and Okay, yeah, we've got to return to this. But yeah, I mean, I'm just... That immediately strikes home to that. Do you remember uh, if you've seen Adam Curtis's... Is it Hypernormality? Hyper... Hypernormalization. Not hypernormalization. That's very good. But that that kind of has... 
Uh, it draws a, a lot of note towards uh, Patti Smith's kind of poverty tourism art things. Um, nice. She's just kind of heavily romanticizing the kind of the 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 squalor of downtown um, as if it's this brilliant thing. But it's like actually no, this is this kind of shit for a lot of people who aren't who don't look like Patti Smith. Mm. God bless her. She's brilliant. But you know, Lindsay <laughs> right, Ellis yeah. <laughs> uh, and Lindsay, the YouTuber Lindsay Ellis, uh, her video on rent uh, covers this very very well. But obviously, so, you know, from a completely different generic angle. Um, right, so rent one, fascinates me. I'm going to have to check that out. Mm, so very, yes, yeah, so it's a very good video. Um, and for, for myself, a couple of cyberpunk texts I want to mention. One is the, for God's sake, uh, let's get something by a woman in here. Okay. Oh, no, I'm, I'm going to let you both down, I'm afraid. Uh, I, I, figured, I was going to say they, The Peripheral by William Gibson, which is... A oh, that was fun. It took me a few attempts to get into the, to get through that book, actually. There was something about... I, I just found the style very jarring a couple... It took me a while to actually figure out what I was doing with this book. But I think... I re I, I grew I came to very to really really like it and really enjoy it and there's some one of the things that's very striking about the peripheral is the way that it really really uh, draws attention to the economic uh, elements in, inherent in cyberpunk and specifically the class dimensions in that uh, it is set in two futures separated by about fifty years and in the later future um, the world has become literally kleptocratic the world is governed by the city of the city of london the capital c by the, the the square mile as a proper nick landian neo-reactionary uh neo-cameralist capital anarcho-capitalist state where it is they basically run things now there are there are governments left but they are completely secondary in terms of importance and precedence and I, it was something I quite I like this novel just for doing that just for having this openly kleptocratic form of government happening uh, t- taking place and happening there uh, it's just, yeah, so yeah, I think it's I think it's a really good book, and I enjoy I've enjoyed it more than the other William Gibson I've read. To be honest, uh, I think it's there's cool stuff in there. I liked it a lot as a book. Um, the other thing I want to mention is uh, actually Skinny Puppy's album Weapon, which is the only Skinny Puppy album I can comfortably listen all the way. Are we through. are we getting into contemporary cyberpunk? Because this is double well, the peripheral was a few it was just like oh okay it was like four years ago right right so and and Weapon was twenty twelve I think it came uh, out okay. so yeah but this is oh, this okay. is this is contemporary yeah yeah uh, in that well I was also like waxing lyrical about Skinny Puppy's sound but it does. It really is. It just. It might. A lot of it is due to the fact I was listening to this while reading the peripheral, so it just has a built-in association there. But it does just really feel suitable for the here and now, for the emergent, for well, not the emergent, but the present security state in which we live, for the the corp, the corporate, the increasing corporate domination of every element of our lives. It just does. I think it just deals with it in musical form in a very good and compelling way in the way which is a lot more accessible than anything else they've managed to do whilst not like surrendering the harshness and the unpleasantness inherent in their music um i feel at this point in time we're not going to do justice to the um the the sphere of feminist cyberpunk theory and fiction and no, that there, we should there, treat this on another episode yeah there's some, po- there some points i wanted to bring up about the bodiliness of eva uh, but which is kind of the, the points I wanted to make one specific to cyberpunk, they're more sort of 
phenomenological philosophical points. But then can... again, this is this is getting into the territory of that book that I've put on the floor very quietly. Uh, <laughs> the um, prefiguring cyberculture, which is all about the the kind of the philosophical ideas that preceded the advent of computers, but are now finding a profound and striking realization in the reality of cyberculture. Yeah. Well, uh, as ever, as ever, there is never really an end to an episode of Weird Signal. There is just the point where we stop talking on uh, on the microphone. Yeah. Uh, and this is definitely this is inevitably going to be a topic which we will return to again in force at a later date, sometime next year, because cyberpunk is very much an inexhaustible seam of conversation and discussion. And I hope you'll join us again sometime. Elizabeth. I, I would love to. This was a blast. Yes, we <laughs> should, because uh, I will make of Lucy a Doctor Who fan one of these days. I mean, I, I, I watched, you know, I watched all the... I, I am a particular it's Troughton fan. It's watching. It's believing. Okay, but I find uh, I've, I've, I found most of the. Group. <laughs> I found that's the that's the that's the hang up I have that I found uh, so much of recent Doctor Who, just that profoundly unwatchable. <laughs> uh, well, that's because it is. But we there is so much cool stuff. We we, we yeah yeah you know what I'm I'm gonna call it out here. We're gonna do a Doctor Who episode at. Um, next year sometime it will have to be at this point and it'd be great if we can manage to uh, coordinate that with uh, you elizabeth and get you back on yeah i'd love to come back for another one excellent well th- uh thank you for joining us uh as oh, our very first guest me. this has been this has been really cool this has gone really smoothly uh until next time uh stay weird and keep it signal goodbye good, good night Never say-